Hi, I'm Matt Wiseman, and this is Meeting What. Today I have three parts for you. Um, just some updates of the stories of the week, and then I'm going to go into uh, Joe Biden and his domestic policy, and then finally uh, wrap it all up with the foreign policy and foreign events that are happening um, within the last couple of weeks and also in the, the coming week. Part one, updates. So, had a kind of disturbing attack in Rochester, New York on a nine-year-old girl, of course a black girl, and I say of course because violence in the states often is disproportionate upon black and brown people, and it's not fair, and it's not right, and we have protests about it, and we seem to continue that struggle where a nine-year-old girl was arrested and maced. And now they're thinking of passing legislation to say that you can't mace children. I don't know why this needs to be said, and I hope that this trend of giving police impunity instead of actual consequences and having them take responsibility for their actions um, ends, that we, we can actually give, have a responsible police force. The attack on the Capitol, there's some news there. Uh, about last week, uh, General Mathis came out and said, absolutely not, that we will, the, the armed forces, the DOD is not at all in support of such things. So the coup was not a serious attempt. You cannot have a serious military coup without the military. And the military state has come out against this. So if that's a worry, we need not worry. Though if Trump was there, that would be way worse than what it was. That being said, um, the FBI needs to be in charge of this. We do not want the national security state. We do not want the authority of the Department of Defense or the defense industry on the streets of the U.S., we do not want that. We do not need that. Um, even though D.C. is already very much a police city, as opposed to a police state, um, and it continues to be, which is disconcerting, the FBI has this, and it will take longer, but they have their mandates, they have laws to follow, and we need them to follow their laws. There's some news about the FBI using link analysis so if you see like in these cop shows where they have the red string that goes from A to B to C. So what that actually is, is, you know, putting all kinds of people and some of them will just be factors to organize around, not actual suspects. So a lot of innocent people be involved in this link analysis that have no guilt and they should not be seen as guilty, but they are just organizing factors. If people hate the squad, it doesn't mean the squad are guilty of anything. But the people that hate them may have created, you know, been criminals. And so they need to be looked in as two as suspects. So that could be in the link analysis. But what that also suggests is that the FBI is not interested in the lower levels. They are trying to get to the 
organizers. They're trying to get to those who actually put this together. Not just those who accelerated it or incited it necessarily, but those who are organizing this and where it all came from. The internet is a record and they can find the answers. So that should make everyone feel a little better. Um, Bernie gets the green light to, uh, he's number four in the Democratic Party, and he got the green light to go ahead with budget reconciliation. So it is Thursday now, and uh, that means that tonight they're going to have the Votorama, which is basically from everywhere, from every, every angle, every person, everybody that wants anything done or added to the budget, they will add it as an amendment. Apparently the GOP has 400 amendments they're planning. So it's just going to be a blitz of all kinds of amendments to the recovery plan. Joe Manchin, of course, is playing his opposition card and he's trying to have a power play. He's in opposition to the, the checks, but then he backpedaled on that. And now he seems to be in opposition to the $15 minimum wage. And he wants at $11 an hour, just above the poverty line, instead of anything close to a living wage, which $15 would not be. And they do have a five-year rollout. So it's already terribly insufficient. Although it is 90% approval rating and States like Florida have definitely gone for it. And even uh, the governor, billionaire governor, Republican as they come in West Virginia, Joe Manchin's state, is saying that we need to help the people of West Virginia. We need state aid and all of these things. So Joe Manchin is to the right of his own Republican constituency. We'll see how that works out for him. Marjorie Taylor Greene, they want to isolate her and call her the problem the way they did to Trump. Say he was the problem with the GOP instead of accepting any responsibility. Well, the Senate Minority Leader McCarthy wants the GOP to be in lockstep. McConnell's pretty good at this, but he has come out against... Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he's come out for Liz Cheney, neocon side of the party. And it seems that McCarthy has visited Trump in this regard, and he has gotten some concessions out of Greene, but he also has given some. So this has all been behind the scenes. And Marjorie Taylor Greene says that her being a Parkland shooter, a truther, um, being a Newtown, Connecticut truther, uh, calling the Rothschild family. Um, we're developing space lasers that started California wildfires. So basically, she's this icon of conspiracy theories, including Stop the Steal, including perhaps targeting uh, Nancy Pelosi's life during the Capitol riots. So Margaret Taylor Greene is a clear and present danger. She's a threat to her colleagues. Um, and it seems that the GOP is going to support her. It seems that she is popular and Trump is popular, way more popular than McCarthy, way more popular than McConnell or Liz Cheney. 
So I think they're going to accept it. The GOP is going to defend her just like they tried to say that it was unconstitutional to impeach Trump. And there's going to be a vote on that as well. Nancy Pelosi is trying to use the power she never really uses and her master negotiating skills that she never seems to have to deal with it. Seems that, that there was a, a move to remove Liz Cheney from her standing in the GOP and that that got rescinded. So perhaps that was the compromise. That's just the updates for the week. Part two, domestic policy. Really have this broken into two parts. So the first part is just going to be the hearings in Congress about the GameStop stonks, right? So this is the GameStop story I mentioned last week. It seems that the government is, um, and the, the Financial Services Committee underneath uh, the leadership of Maxine Waters, which has rejected um, Katie Porter's admission into this Congress. Because before, in the last previous Congress, maybe even two Congresses, she was on this committee and she was a firebrand and she was bringing it very clearly to CEOs and embarrassing a lot of very powerful CEOs. So the only reason I would think that she would not be allowed on this committee is either that she was stealing the spotlight and people are jealous, or she was embarrassing some people that are big funders of the Democratic Party, and perhaps Maxine Waters. Oh, Maxine Waters. Generally, Maxine Waters is pretty good, um, and I do like her, but she is now calling in the Robin Hood CEO, which is totally legitimate, and looking at some Redditors and bringing them in for their participation in the stock buying of GameStop stocks, GameSpot, <laughs> GameStop stocks, and AMC stocks to see if there's a conspiracy or something. That list could grow, but so far, those are the two people on it. Um, seems disproportionate towards the service provided uh, in online because Robinhood was not the only one corrupted in this, and uh, there is no major hedge funders that have to come in and explain why they were shorting it. You know, even people like BlackRock were against them. So it's not like there wasn't, it was one side or the other, just Melvin Capital took a 125% short, basically forcing GameStop in the ground with such confidence and aggressiveness. And they should pay a price for being so bold and foolish. And the average investor from Reddit and Wall Street Bets thought, okay, let's do this. And now they're going to get called into Congress because these guys were acting foolish and taking bets that they thought that they had on lock. And that's ridiculous. Robin Hood was corrupted here. They could have said that they were just had a cash flow problem, but it looks like that they 
found the answer to the cash flow problem and they restricted the buying of GameStop and AMC stocks on their service, which is they should lose their charter. They should lose their ability to be a company, period. You got to start a new company or something, but you can't operate anymore. They should be censured. But they weren't the only ones. So if you're going to smack them down, who else? So that's very important domestic policy, but also we have Biden. Let's just have an update on what Biden's doing. Okay, so we did the budget reconciliation. We got the green light on him. He seems to be deferring to the Senate, as we said before. Um, the big news this week is he is not pushing student debt forgiveness as an executive order, which he definitely can do. And Chuck Schumer is saying you got $50,000 you can forgive. And then, you know, Bernie was saying all of it and or based on like means testing, but all of it is most likely for Bernie, what he was saying on the campaign trail. And Biden said $10,000. Now he's saying, oh, it's going to be something for the Senate. Something that has to pass through legislation. Which means he doesn't want it done. It's not like it's a surprise that the Senate and the House and how Congress has been working over the last decade has been an embarrassment. An international embarrassment, just not a national embarrassment. Washington doesn't function, and this is part and parcel of that. Now, if Biden wanted a win here, if he just wanted to give Americans something, they, it's something that they couldn't just take back later, like environmental regulation under Obama, and then reversed by Trump, and now reinstituted under Biden. He could forgive the debt, and it would be forgiven, like a pardon. They wouldn't throw people back in jail because the next president says, no, you're not, no longer pardoned. Can't do that. So he also met with a lot of um, budget hawks in the GOP that said they were going to oppose whatever he was doing. And of course, he met with them and he spoke with them. He had a long meeting, a two-hour meeting, where he looks like he's capitulating. He's going to lead with diplomacy. Like he's going to come down on his kind of modest offer to begin with. I'm sure in his mind he's he's being aggressive with the multi-trillion dollar bill he's proposing, but it is not compared to other nations. It does not have regular payments. It does not have anything linked to the pandemic. It is another one-time, one-off fight that Democrats can't keep it out of their minds that these things can be linked to the cost of inflation, the rise in inflation. It could be linked to um, poverty. It could be linked to moving metrics. We could basically make one decision and be done with it instead of having fights after fights after fights as if we're going to have a better resolution next time. Or the aid isn't going to be needed after one payment. Is that how life works? You just get a one-time gift and that's it, you're done. 
I don't know about you, but I got to pay rent or some people got to pay mortgage and you got to pay insurance and you got to pay car payments. That's every month. But that's not how the U.S. government works. Only universal programs get monthly distributions like Social Security or as-needed distributions like Medicare, Medicaid. The most popular programs the U.S. does are not linked to this fight or that fight. They are linked to as their need and previous agreements. And the, a lot of these, this, the Biden administration has been very quiet and they've been, if they're doing anything, which is doubtful, it's like Biden in the basement, except now it's Biden in the White House. He said $1,400 checks are a must. He doesn't want to begin his administration on broken promises. I'm all for getting a check, but if you don't want to begin your administration on broken promises, why did he campaign on $2,000 checks? Why is he negotiating down when he won? Why is he linking all of this together in a big bundle when it's popular and you can get people to vote on it and get it out right out the door with Republicans right away? It just seems like political suicide. You have a mandate. Republicans agree with you. Donald Trump was fighting for this. Just make it happen. Why do you have to go back on it at all? Make it more. If you put $2,500 checks in there for every American, do you think anyone's going to complain about that? The new news is it was everyone underneath $75,000 a year. Now it seems that Biden wants to make it everyone under $50,000 a year, basically affecting 90% of the population down to 60% of the population. It's pathetic that that's the reality, but still, he's cutting out 30% of the population that said they were going to get a check, that got the $600 checks. And now he's going to give them less or nothing? And why? He doesn't want to spend the money. He's not going to say that. Or he's capitulating to uh, the GOP. It's really embarrassing, honestly. If this is the guy, this is the guy to save us. He hasn't really come out about a $15 minimum wage, but we just talked about it. He could pressure Manchin. Kamala Harris was in West Virginia. She was giving interviews. She was pushing for this. They should embarrass him. They should talk to his constituency. He should not be in the Democratic Party. And if Kristen Cinema is a coward and a cynic too, then she should never be there either. We can get better representation because we can talk to the constituents and we can work in these areas. I'd love it if more progressives were there. More leftists won in red states. You can have conservative values and be economically progressive. It's not mutually exclusive. So lastly, I want to talk about Biden's M.O. What is his modus operandi? How does he get things done? Well, 
he is Mr. Find a Middle Road. He's going to see whatever's presented and then try and get in the middle of it. And then everybody is a little unhappy and everybody's a little happy and then that's compromise and we go ahead. That's the way he likes to do business. There's two problems with that. What's needed is massive systemic change and bold moves. Bold moves to the left. Universal programs. Real help. You know, a universal medical coverage. What's needed is what Bernie Sanders was offering. What's needed is a systemic change away from our cultural capitalism, again, away from neoliberalism, away from this undemocratic system we have in place. What's needed is money out of politics so that our representatives have to come to us and that we have power again in the U.S. The problem of finding the middle ground between what's presented is that what's being presented is either right-leaning in the Democratic Party or totally right and extreme right economically. And what's left is a hard right. That's what you get. Between right-leaning and extreme extremist, you get a hard right. That's the middle ground. These Republicans were happy to pass the bill with zero money for people. They got talked into a $600 check. $600. Republic Democrats were supposedly wanting $2,000 monthly payments during the pandemic. That was Kamala Harris's bill. She's the vice president. Where is she? She's following Biden into the basement. Part where we're talking about foreign news, some recent developments, and the future uh, next week, even. So, first Turkey. There was there's been protests on in, in Turkey uh, about a new university head that I believe is not secular, and they're protesting that. And um, Recep Ertab, uh, Erdogan is cracking down on it. People were upset about him taking office in 2013 and there was a lot of protests and he responded very poorly, the huge crackdown, and he is intent on cracking down again. And so he is very much aggressive, aggressively cracking down on these protests, calling them terrorists, saying that they've been infiltrated by terrorists. So this should all feel very familiar to anybody who followed the capitalist riots or the Black Lives Matter protests. It's the same talking points. They are using the same playbook. Biden seems like he's going to be left, less confrontational with China. He, uh, he hasn't really committed to anything, but there's a lot of things that need to be negotiated. And it's good. He needs to... 100% find a way to work things out with China because the U.S. cannot survive on its own as it is. We cannot. They are growing fast. We are not growing. 
This year, we didn't grow at all. And there was a negative growth and last in, in, uh, in 2020, and China grew. They grew like 3%, which is our average. 3 to 6%, and China grows about 20% a year for the past 20 years. So we need to be part of that, and we need to negotiate with them, and we need to try to make them... We need to make ourselves believe in civil liberties and human rights. And then we can start negotiating with other people about what they do. China is not perfect, and they have made mistakes, and they continue to make mistakes. And the U.S. is the same. We make mistakes, and we continue to make mistakes. But they did handle COVID-19 much better than most countries in the world. They did solve a massive poverty problem in their own country. They do know how to make their economy grow much faster than anyone else. We can learn from them, and we should not isolate ourselves from them when we need them to continue growth and prosperity in our own nation. We simply do not have the capacity to do what they do. We should develop it, though. And we need to be a close ally, if anything, until we have greater capacity, until we stop being an empire in decline and we start thriving again. That's going to be a very difficult turnaround, and we're going to have to look at ourselves. But China is in the ascension, and there is a very grim future without them for the U.S. Iran and the GCPOA, the um, nuclear deal, so far it seems that they're in support of that. Um, Biden has come out and said that he will defend the Saudis and in their right to defend themselves if they are getting attacked by Iran. But he will no longer support the war in Iraq in Yemen. So that's fantastic. The, the, the aggressive postures of the UAE and the Saudis and the Israelis in their attack on Yemen, basically for their resources of Yemen, um, the U.S. is going to stop supporting them, stop selling them arms and on a permanent basis. That's fantastic. Now, it doesn't mean, it means a, it's a good, positive first step. What the fallout of that is, it's questionable. We don't really know. We don't know what's going to happen with Iran and what's going to happen with that coalition that Trump was very firmly inside of. Uh, Biden has agreed to increase refugees into the U.S. from last year's number of 18,000, which is an all-time low, to 125,000, which is still not very high compared to other European Union nations, considering a lot of these people are actually coming from war-torn Middle East that the U.S. has really helped to create. 
So I want to uh, shift gears a little bit and go to South America, talk about two countries in particular. First, Venezuela, and then I'm going to talk about Ecuador and their coming elections. Well, one more note, Biden said that he will not do the uh, marked withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, which was what Trump administration had worked out with the Taliban, that they would withdraw from Afghanistan into uh, having just essential personnel there. I think something like 200 soldiers, maybe it's 2,000, I'm not sure. But he said, we're actually not going to do that, and we're going to increase our presence in Afghanistan. So that's the war that seems to never end. And after Osama bin Laden was killed, it doesn't really have a purpose anymore or an end goal. We're just there. We're there, and we are occupying Afghanistan. Like Iraq. Iraq never had a purpose. We were never supposed to be there. We were lied into that war. Still there. So Venezuela. On January 27th, in a, a Venezuelan uh, news channel called uh, Noticias Caracol, Snail News, um, they talked to Yancy Alvarez about Operation Gideon. So this is going to get complicated, but Operation Gideon was these attempted coup attempts in of ex-Venezuelans and in, in, um, Venezuelans living in exile to attack and violently overthrow Maduro, the elected leader of Venezuela. It was, Yancy Alvarez was the person who was actually interviewed. She is currently in a Colombian prison because she was arrested in September. But the, the actual coup leaders, the people that were actually involved in the coup, the, these Venezuelans and these ex-Green uh, Berets, from a mercenary group called Silver Cup, Silver Corp, sorry, Silver Corp, Jordan Garou, Garou, Jordan Garou, um, who was actually working in conjunction, he was for Florida-based Silver Cup, and he was working and had met with Trump administration officials, FBI, and the CIA. As with uh, Yancy Alvarez. And Yancy Alvarez was in a, had worked out with uh, the Colombian government under Ivan Parquet, uh, who was the president there, and Alvaro Irby, and their intelligence agency, the DNI, had worked out an agreement that they would, they being the... Uh, Venezuelans living, you know, attempting this coup, living in uh, exile, um, Yancy Alvarez as this translator for Jordan Garou and previous general Cliver Alcala, Alcalda, Alcala, 
and Franklin Duran, who is a multimillionaire who flew her back and forth. So all these people are involved, and those are Venezuelans. And they basically made this agreement that they would hunt socialist guerrillas in exchange for having a staging ground, being able to, you know, to land planes, being able to cross the border into Venezuela. So they could do this coup. Well, they had one attempt in March, and they had another attempt in May, and numerous uh, coup leaders and agents were arrested, and they've been sentenced to 20 years in Venezuelan prison. Yancy got out, and she was actually just organizing it. She wasn't going to be on the ground, and she was being protected by the Colombians, and the Colombians arrested her, and she's been in prison there as a form of plausible deniability. So this is all very recent news that we could take all these details about who was involved in Operation Gideon and trying to overthrow the legitimacy of the Venezuelan government. By the way, they just had an election and Maduro won again very easily. And there was nothing wrong with it. So that's Venezuela. And lastly, we have Ecuador. So if you'll remember, about a year ago, Bolivia had a problem where the OAS and the New York Times uh, said that their elections were not legitimate. And Evo Morales had to flee for his life from right-wing forces and the military. Um, there's a racial component there. So I don't know if it's the white military versus the indigenous military where he was the first indigenous leader, president of Bolivia, and very popular, very left-leaning. So there's a possibility that that's going to happen again in Ecuador. They have elections on February 7th. The current president is Lenin Moreno, and he was the vice president under the very popular, very leftist Rafael Correa, and he got elected seemingly to be this continuation of these leftist policies, these 10 years of really lifting Ecuador out of the 50-year nightmare that neoliberalism was, and he sold them all out. He took on huge debts from the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and he cut programs, including during this pandemic, he cut millions of dollars going to schools, he cut millions of dollars going to hospitals during a pandemic so that he could pay back loans that they took from the IMF, that he took from the IMF, that they didn't even need to take. So he's a bad guy. And there right now is the inheritor to Korea, uh, the the from a new party because they they uh, Moreno actually tried to root out all of his opposition his political opposition under Correa and he banned that party from running anybody so Andreas Arauz actually had to move to a different party he's still supported by Correa. And he is the most popular one out there. 
Right now, I think he's got 40% of the vote. Um, and people, his closest competitor is Guillermo Lasso, who is Moreno's uh, inheritor. He's the one who's taken that right-wing position. He's explicitly right-wing, though, as Moreno was basically betraying the left people that he got arrested. And Moreno is in D.C. now trying to talk to the U.S. and replay what happened in Bolivia, saying that the elections aren't legitimate. But then the people are marching in the streets for Arauz. And his vice president is uh, Carlos Rapacel. So Arauz and Rapacel look like they're going to win. Most of the polling says that they're going to win except one place, which is actually funded. This one polar, pollster is funded by the World Bank, and it's called Sedatos. And they are saying that Laszlo has that 26% that other ones say, but they, they say that, that Arauz has 24 or 22, when he has 40 in everybody else's polls. And so they are already putting the seed of doubt out there. And of course, when rich and powerful people put a seed of doubt into elections, we could see a military coup. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope that the will of the Ecuadorian people is expressed in a free and fair election. And it looks like the leftist Andres Arauz will be elected. You know, he's a 35-year-old economist who worked in the Correa administration. He's definitely going to be somebody who is good for all of South America and Ecuador. He's already been working with the Fernandez government in Argentina to secure vaccines that they're being produced in Argentina. The um, AstraZeneca, uh, in accordance with Mexico, Mexico is also producing these vaccines in Latin America. And so he secured something like 50,000 or 5,000 vaccines that he's going to deliver. As soon as he gets elected, he'll, he'll go through with it. And he wants to resurrect a kind of political block in South America. Now, that could be see something like a, like a trade and immigration block similar to the EU. That would be really good because it would be really leftist. What you have to understand about South America is certain countries, since Pinochet and all of these takeovers and all of the rooting out of leftists um, under Kissinger and under Pinochet, it, based in Argentina and Chile, and actually in accordance with the Pope, in accordance with France, in accordance with um, France through Interpol, all of this happened. So. It's been an upward fight to get leftists back into power after military leaders and right-wing military leaders have basically seized power and taken over many governments. And there has been this political battle here in South America. My wife is from Argentina, so I have a connection. But what's happened is that Colombia has become this narco state similar to Mexico where you have a lot of influences of the, the uh, 
the cartels, and you also have a lot of influence in the US, of the US in Colombia. So Colombia is that way. Brazil, they had this takeover with, um, you know, I'm blanking on his name, but they got uh, Bolsonaro, Yair Bolsonaro, who was basically instilled by the, by America, and by this whole like anti-corruption farce um, that put Lula, that put Lula da Silva in jail. You had this great leftist leader who was rising all these people out of poverty, and one of the ways he did it is he paid people to go to school. He paid people to go to school, and then people that are in dire poverty got out of poverty. He paid people to get inoculated so you didn't have sicknesses, like vaccines and viruses, you know, you get the viruses. You use the federal money to avoid paying money later. So Lula da Silva was this great leftist leader who was amazing at what he did. And then this military guy, Jair Bolsonaro, who was intolerant and this right-wing nationalist, somehow cuts in because Lula da Silva was in jail and his supporters were jailed. Some of them had to flee for their lives. You know that the U.S. was behind some of that. At least made, you know, it's the very same playbook that they, they're using in, um, in Venezuela and in uh, Bolivia. In Chile, you had these protests. The neoliberalism has taken over since Pinochet, and there's no, no way out of it. The leftists were crushed in that nation. And because of the Andes Mountains, they're isolated enough that they can stay at a distance and they can be like the U.S., have a right-wing takeover without any kind of open understanding of political possibilities. You know, this is the problem with the U.K. The United Kingdom is an island. The U.S. is an island surrounded by, you know, no other options as far as leftists or, that, or you know, other nations that they respect. While in Europe, you can't do that. You have trading partners and they will have leftist ideologies and you will have to accept that. And you will have to include that. And this is why even the UK, who is an island, uh, has a labor party. They've been infiltrated by intelligence officers and they currently, after Jeremy Corbyn, their leader is an ex-intelligence officer. Is it MI5? I always think Mission Impossible, but I don't know. And so the, the struggle is real. You know? And we need to be aware of it, and we need to look out for it. But yeah, root for democracy. If the people's will is to be controlled by military uh, juntas, I would say that maybe that's not the people's will. But if the people's will is to elect a popular leader who actually made their lives materially better, it's probably the people's will. It's not really hard to see that democracy wants a leader that looks after its people. You know, we can see this with uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. 
She's looking after her people. They had one attack at um, Gold Church and they outlawed guns immediately. The, those, those machine guns. They dealt, dealt with it. You can even look to them as a model for how to deal with COVID too. No nation is an island, even if some of them literally are an island. What I'm seeing is that the world is a big place and the push and pull between the rich and the powerful that don't want democracy, that want to control your lives, that want to own companies, that want to make infinite profits, that want to just steal from you and your labor and your products and the things that you produce, that is the capitalism way. That is encouraged. That is the definition of capitalism. While there is another way. It has all the employees becoming the owners. The owners don't do anything. They collect the profits. They play the stock market. They, you know, lobby government. They are knee-deep in the dark money, in campaigning, in politics. And it's all a game to them that they keep winning. Well, who's losing? The majority. How is that democracy? If everybody has one vote, and that votes are all equal to everyone else's, it's not. And we need to realize that. Be on the lookout for Ecuadorian elections and what happens internationally. Because this won't really be an internal thing. That's why Moreno is in D.C. and he's not in his own nation. And his final days in office. So in a quick, uh, quick summation, we did some updates of uh, news from the week. We, um, we talked about some domestic policy issues, including the hearings and uh, Biden's position or lack thereof. And finally, we finished with uh, some talk on foreign policy positions and movement there from the Biden administration, as well as um, the situation in Venezuela and the, you know, the, uh, the Operation Gideon of Venezuela. And then finally, we closed on the Ecuador and the upcoming elections. and. The potential for a coup that exists and also the potential for a unified, progressive, democratic, people-focused, labor-focused South America. I want the world to be better. This looks like a way it can be better and I hope and I pray that it's just not, it's not crushed. It's not subjected to violence and authoritarianism and imperialism, but instead people are allowed to be self-determinant in their lives. They're allowed to make their lives better. They're allowed to live 
with decency and dignity. If not in the U.S., then at least in Ecuador. Okay, everybody. Just know that you're not alone and the fight against tyranny and the fight against oppression is a global fight. And we need to recognize that and we need to allow people to make their own decisions in this world, especially if they're not trying to harm anybody. I heard once, I think it was Kyle Kolinsky talking about Noam Chomsky's influence on him. Maybe it was Baskar Sakara, but they were talking about once you see the world as the acquisition and control of resources, it's really hard not to see that. And of course, the biggest resource of them all is human beings. We are a valuable resource and we deserve to be treated with more dignity and more respect than we are. All of you, everyone. Don't forget that you deserve to be happy and you deserve good things despite what's happening. Take care of each other. Talk to you next week.